Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. Can you give the Lord a praise offering today? Woo! Woo! Wow, you can have a seat. Man, it is good to be here today. All right, I am super pumped about this message. And, uh, but before I get to the message, uh, there's just some things that I want to celebrate today. You know, sometimes good things happen. God does good things, and we just rush past them to the next thing. And there's some things that have happened in our church and through our church that I want to celebrate and not just kind of rush past today. One happened yesterday when we gathered together with some parents who came to dedicate their children to the Lord. We had like, I think, 10 families that came to dedicate their children to the Lord. Like Hannah, they came forward to say, we have been entrusted as stewards over this child. We have hopes and dreams for this child, but God has a will and a way, and this child belongs to the Lord. So we are giving our child to the Lord today, and nothing to celebrate. And then over the last three weeks, I've uh, had the opportunity to visit some places that we partner with as a church that we support, that we give uh, some of our ties and our offerings to, that we are engaged with. And uh, God is just doing some amazing things that I just want to celebrate. Three weeks ago, I was in Argentina, I was in Buenos Aires. In Buenos Aires, there are three really amazing churches that are there. All three have really cool names. One is named Echo, one Nexo, and one Human. And uh, they are led by next generation leadership. God is working in uh, their midst. People are coming to Jesus. The churches are growing. All of them are in very different neighborhoods, but they're having impact for the kingdom in the neighborhood where God has placed them. They are impacting the city of Buenos Aires. God is doing some incredible things. And it's not just that. It's not just what we have invested in them. They have invested in us. They have sent over the years interns and fellows to be with us, to partner with us, to work on staff with us. Two of those fellows you know very, very well, Yvonne and David, who came in 2020 during COVID and had supposed to stay six months, had to stay 12 months, and uh, what was tough for them was a blessing for us because we got them for 12 months. Yvonne is now one of the pastors down at one of the churches in Buenos Aires, and he's working with Loretta Network that we partner with as well. And David, we stole back from the churches there and is on staff here at Fairfax in our creative arts department and doing an amazing, amazing job. And we should celebrate all of that. David is in the back and last service when I said Argentina, he went crazy. Uh, but uh, he's quiet right now. He's like, he's like uh, being nice right now, behaving right now. 
Um, and then the other thing is that just this last week, I had the opportunity to go to Kenya and to Malawi. In Kenya, there is the school, Kima International School of Theology, that we helped to start 28 years ago. And we had the 28-year uh, graduation exercises, and I was able to be at that. We had a board meeting. I was able to be at the board meeting. And there were 140 graduates this year, more than they have ever had in the history of the school. And uh, Kenya, in the Church of God, our denomination, has about 1,000 congregations in Kenya. And 100 pastors received their uh, certificate, their one-year certificate, their ordination-type certificate during this graduation exercises. So God is raising up a whole new generation of leaders there. And there were folks that got certificates, folks that one-year certificates, two-year diplomas, uh, four-year bachelor degrees. And so it's just some really, really cool things happened. And then I got to go to Malawi where the national leader there is a fellow by the name of Emmanuel. And Emmanuel um, has been on the point for a number of years, an amazing leader, maybe one of the best African leaders that I have ever been acquainted with. And they are kind of on the front end. They have 140 churches in Malawi, churches that just grew out of almost nothing, just God's Holy Spirit that brought them into existence. And now they're at this point where they're needing to actually give some training to those who are in leadership to be able to start more churches, to be able to be sustainable as a movement. And so they are, what's exciting about it is that they are basically where KIST was 28 years before and we have the opportunity to partner with them on this journey to raise up a whole, new, uh, a whole new group of leaders, a whole new generation of leaders in Malawi. And so we have made the commitment to partner with Malawi and with the Church of God there to start also a training school there that eventually will become a, a, a school of theology that eventually then will become a full-fledged university. So it's just exciting, exciting what God is doing. So we celebrate that. And then uh, the other thing that I just wanna celebrate is personal. So this week, uh, my wife and I, Don and I, celebrated our 44th wedding anniversary. And, and uh, some of you know that uh, we got married on Donna's birthday, uh, which she is very quick to say to anyone who is like planning out their wedding, never do that. Like never do that. But we got married, uh, we got married on her birthday and so not only did we celebrate our 44th anniversary, we celebrated her 35th birthday. It's miraculous how that math works, but absolutely incredible. And I am so, so thankful for my um, incredible wife. All right, so we're in the fifth week of our study in the book of, uh, book of Job. And uh, just a little summary again of kind of what this book is about. Job is a guy who had everything going for him in life. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of God. He had a big family. He was wealthy. He had incredible influence. And then in an instant, it just all falls apart. 
he loses everything. His wealth, his family is killed. And then on top of everything else, Job's own health begins to fail. And the reason that we're doing this study in Job is because nothing is more certain in life than suffering. And maybe the suffering that we go through is not like the Job level of suffering, but we all will go through stuff that you didn't expect, you didn't see coming, difficult kinds of things that you find yourself going in, stuff that you would never have wished on yourself or the people that are close to you, and it could be health stuff or the loss of a loved one or some kind of disaster, a relational disaster, a financial disaster, a health disaster, whatever it is, some profound disappointment, some form of violence, whatever it is. And all of us will experience something that is difficult and challenging and, and probably unexpected. Now, as I mentioned the very first week, and we've talked about uh, since then, is that Job is divided into three categories. First category, the first conversation is a conversation between Job and uh, between God and Satan. The second long section of Job is this dialogue that takes place between Job and his friends. And this dialogue basically is not really a dialogue. It's like two competing monologues. So it's like Job, Job's friends like do a monologue where they tell him, here's why you're suffering. It's all your fault. It's because of the way you live life, whatever. And then Job responds with a monologue of his own, like refuting what it is that they're saying and the reasoning behind it. And that just goes on and on. There's just like these monologue after monologue, this kind of back and forth conversation between Job and his friends. That's the second big section. That's what we've been dealing with the last three weeks. The first dialogue we dealt with last three weeks, we talked about this conversation between Job and his friends. And then next week, we talk about the final conversation, which is the conversation between Job and God. But when you get to kind of the end of the conversation between Job and his friends, you find yourself at chapter 28. And I want us to look today at chapter 28 because chapter 28 is a unique chapter. It's in the middle section of the book where there's this discussion going on Job and his friends about why he's suffering. Basically, his friends, again, are telling him that he's suffering because of something he's done. And Job keeps defending himself to his friends. Now, near the end of the dialogue that is going on, we get to this poem, which is chapter 28. It's a poem that is all about wisdom. It's all about the wisdom to know how to suffer well. Remember when we started the series, we said Job is really, you're gonna be disappointed if you think that Job is about answering the question, why do we suffer, or why do good people suffer, or why am I suffering, or why do the people that I love suffering, or how do we get out of suffering? Like, that's not what Job is about. Job is about how do we suffer well. And so you get to chapter 28, and Job, I know the whole book is a type of poem, but you get to chapter 28, 28 and it's this specific poem that Job writes, that Job offers, that is addressing this issue of how to have the wisdom to suffer well. Really, really beautiful, beautiful poem. And in many ways, it's the conclusion of Job's insights on what is going on in his life. In the midst of all of his suffering, Job comes to the, the highest insight, actually, of how do you suffer well. 
And he begins the poem by talking about all the ways that people mine for precious metals. In fact, you start to read it and you go, what does this have to do with the conversation that they've been having? He talks about how people mine for gold and silver and diamonds, how they mine for emeralds, how they mine for all of these precious metals. And they, they dig into the rocks and they, they dig down underneath the riverbed, all of that. Like, and, and then he talks about that for like the first eight verses. And then you get to verse nine. And this is where he kind of takes the conversation. He says, man's hand assaults the flinty rock. That's just uh, another way of saying that, that human beings, they, they mine, they mine the, the mountains, the stone, the rocks to get to these precious, these precious minerals. The man's hands assault the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountain. He tunnels through the rock and he sees all of its treasures. In other words, he's successful in finding gold and finding silver and finding precious gems, all of that. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, Wisdom is not in me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. Now, Job is saying two really important things about one that you kind of expect that he would say, and the other one that comes as a complete surprise. First, he says that wisdom is incredibly valuable. He says in verse 15, wisdom is a treasure that cannot be bought even with the finest gold. It's more precious. Wisdom, he's saying, is more precious than all of the precious metals. It's, all, it's more precious than gold or silver or diamonds or whatever. It's more precious than all of that. In other words, wisdom is super valuable. Wisdom is super important. Now, that's not a surprising statement because wisdom is super valuable, like wisdom in life is super important. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Wisdom is like knowing the decision that you need to make in those situations where there's not some rule that you can apply that tells you, well, here's the decision that you should make in this situation. You can't just go to a verse in the Bible and it gives you the answer for what you should do in this particular situation. Questions like, should I, should I break up with this person? Or should I start to date this person? Or should I marry this person? Or, or should I confront this person with whatever I need, we need to talk about? Or, or should I change jobs? Or should we move to another place, perhaps? How do I deal with this really, really difficult situation, this messy situation at work, this messy situation that I'm dealing with? Like, how do I handle this? What do I say? What do I do? Who do I talk to? How do I confront it? All of that. And the list just goes on and on and on. And those are decisions. The reason wisdom is so valuable, super valuable, is because those are decisions that require wisdom. And, and they make up, I mean, they make up most of the decisions that we make. I don't know exactly the percentage, but 
let's just say like 90% of the decisions that we make are decisions wisdom in order to make them. Wisdom is knowing the right decision to make in the midst of the complexities and subtleties of life. It's knowing the right decision to make when there's no simple moral rule that applies. So it's not surprising that Job would say that wisdom is more precious than gold. It's more precious than any Precious metal. In fact, all of the gold in the world, Job says, couldn't purchase that kind of wisdom. But then Job says, Job says something about wisdom that we don't expect. Not only does he say that wisdom is like super valuable, super important, he says actually that wisdom is unex- inaccessible, that you can't access wisdom, which creates this dilemma, right? It's like this super important thing. It's more valuable than gold. All the gold in the world could not purchase wisdom. And yet, wisdom is inaccessible to us. In verse 12, Job asked this kind of rhetorical question. He says, but but where where can wisdom be found? Where can wisdom be found? And then Job answers the question himself in verse 13. Not by telling us, but telling us where Wisdom cannot be found. And this is what Job says in verse 13. It cannot be found in the land of the living. In other words, you can't find wisdom, Job is saying. uh, You can't find wisdom the way that miners find gold and other precious metals. You can't just go digging for it and hope that you find it. It cannot be discovered by just trying it out. It cannot be discovered by just trying to figure it out. It cannot be discovered by just looking at all of the data points and hoping that the data will give you the answer that you need in order to make this decision. Sometimes we face uh, situations and decisions where we just kind of start spinning, at least I do, where we just kind of start spinning on the decision. We start digging to try to get that answer. We start trying to mine for that answer. And we dig and we dig and we dig and we mine and we mine and we mine and we we spin and we spin and we spin. We stay up all night spinning on that decision. Some of you maybe are probably spinning on some things right now, some decisions that you have to make, some things that you have to deal with, some stuff that you're trying to navigate through that you need wisdom in order to navigate. Your mind is just spinning and spinning and spinning on that. Some of you are not even hearing what I'm saying because your mind is spinning on some decision that you have to make. And Job is saying that that alone, trying to mine for the answer, trying to dig for the answer, trying to trying to spend for the answer that that alone is not going to get you the clarity that you need. That's not going to give you the wisdom that you need in this particular situation because the wisdom you need, he says, cannot be found in the land of the living. In other words, the wisdom you need is not inside you. And you're not gonna be able to accumulate enough data to give you a clear answer. Now, data can give you a lot of answers about a lot of things. 
world of, of, of metadata. And, and we all, businesses, if we're in businesses, in organizations, like we all know the value of data and the value of data points. But what Job is saying is that you're not going to be able to accumulate enough data to give you a clear answer. Even though data can like give you a lot of answers, you can make a lot of decisions based on data, but no amount of data in the world can tell you, for instance, how to suffer well. Like you can accumulate all the data that you want in the world and you will not gain the wisdom on how do I suffer well. No amount of data in the world can tell you what to do in this complex, nuanced situation you find yourself in that involves these complex, nuanced human beings that you're dealing with. Like there's no data point that is gonna give you the ultimate answer for that. Now in the poem, Job asks two questions that sound almost, in responding to all of this, they sound almost identical, but they are very, very different. In verse 12, as we said, he asked this question, where can wisdom be found? And then down in verse 20, he asks another question that sounds almost identical to the question he asked in verse 12, but it's a very, very different question. Verse 12, he says, where can wisdom be found? In verse 20, he asks the question, where then does wisdom come from? Now, they sound like the same question. But they're two very, very different questions. Because the first question is, if I'm trying to find wisdom within myself, if I'm trying to find wisdom with my tools, my cognitive tools of reasoning and processing and all of that, like where can I go to find wisdom? Like where do I have to dig? What do I have to mine? What rock do I need to cut through in order to to gain wisdom. And Job's answer is, you cannot find wisdom that way. That it cannot be found, he says, in the land of the living. Wisdom can't be found just through human reasoning. Wisdom can't be found just through the scientific process. Wisdom can't be found just by mining the data points, mining the data. But in verse 20, Job is asking a different question. He asks, where then, if wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living, where then can wisdom come from? Where then does wisdom come from? This is not a question about how do I go out on my own and find wisdom. It's not a question about where do I dig. This is a question about where can I receive wisdom from? Who can give me wisdom is the question he's asking. And he answers the question in verses 23 and following. He says, God understands the way to it. Talking about wisdom God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where wisdom dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything, everything under heaven. 
And when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and he appraised it. He confirmed it. He tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is where wisdom comes from. The fear of the Lord, that is where wisdom comes from. And to shun evil is understanding. Now Job is saying that the world has this definite pattern to it. It's like this beautiful quilt that has been woven together, right? This beautiful quilt that has been quilted together, but, but God is the only one who sees the whole pattern of the quilt. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful image that, that Job is saying that you have this, you have this beautiful thing that has a, a pattern to it, that has a beauty to it. But the only one who can see the pattern and the only one who can see the beauty is God. That he's the only one who has the perspective on the whole pattern, who has a perspective on the whole beauty. And, and it's very much actually like a quilt. Like sometimes they'll, they'll cover the underside of the quilt with maybe another piece of cloth. But, but actually, if you look at a quilt, on the top side of the quilt is thing that's done that has this pattern to it, this beauty to it. When you look at it in its entirety, like you can see the beauty of the quilt. But if you look on the underside of that same quilt, that's also a part of the quilt. On the underside of the quilt, you see all of these twisted threads, all of these knots that also are part of the quilt but you do not get the perspective that you get when you're looking at the quilt from the other side. And what Job is saying is that God is the only one who sees the quilt from the top. He's the only one who sees the whole pattern. He's the only one who sees the whole beauty. That for us, we are seeing the quilt from the other side. We see all of the twisted threads we see all of the knots, all the things that God can use to design this beautiful quilt, but we can't see the beauty in its entirety of the quilt that God is making. That's what Job is saying. Because God has a perspective that we just do not have. God is the only one who sees the pattern God is the only one who really has the wisdom to know what is best in every nuanced, complex, multi-layered situation. This week I became uh, familiar with a fascinating story about a woman named Susan Sontag. Susan was an American writer, a critic, uh, a public intellectual. Uh, I have no idea about her faith. I, I did some research on her this week when I became familiar with the story, and there's nothing that indicates that she was a person of faith, but 
I don't know that she wasn't a person of faith, but so I can't really say anything about that. And Susan's mom died of lung cancer in 1986. That was the year that Don and I came to Fairfax, is when her mom died of lung cancer. And Susan herself died in 2004 of myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a form of leukemia. And the reason that this story kind of caught my eye uh, is because of the connections uh, and similarities between my own family journey. Um, Two years ago, as most of you know, I was diagnosed with lung cancer, the same thing that her mom died of. And um, I've not talked about this a lot, but my mom died of myelodysplastic syndrome. My mom died of a form of leukemia when she was 70, one year younger than Susan when she died. And after Susan's death, her son, David Reef, uh, wrote a book about his mom entitled Swimming in a Sea of Death. And the book was basically about his mom's journey with cancer. And one of the things that he says in the book is this. He says, her sense that whatever she could will in life, she could also accomplish, has served her so well for so long that it became her organizing principle, her true north. It was that same belief and the power of her own desire, that spectacular ambition, that intellectual bravado that made it impossible for her to accept the fatal illness. It made it impossible for her to accept this was not another circumstance that she could master. And then this this was the sentence that kind of broke me. He said, talking about his mom, she had the death that somewhere she must have come to believe that only other people would ever have from cancer, but not her. She had the death that somewhere she must have come to believe that only other people would ever have from cancer, but not her. And I got to thinking about that and thinking about how that is what all of us at some level struggle with when it comes to facing really difficult, painful situations. And not just about health, not just about cancer, not just about health, about, about anything. Any difficult kind of thing that we may find ourselves going through. It's this kind of inner voice within us, right, that says, I've, I've always known that that other people out there go through this kind of stuff. Like I'm not, 
Now, I'm not unaware of the world. I have cognitive awareness that there are people that go through this kind of stuff that deal with this same kind of thing that deal with it all the time in this broken world I, I I see the news I understand what's going on I hear the stories I see the things on Facebook and other social media accounts like I I know this cognitively that that people in the world go through this stuff like I Understand that I know that, but I never thought I would go through it. I thought that probably I would, for some reason, get a pass on this kind of stuff. I thought that somehow I was different than all of those other people. And when we do find ourselves in really difficult situations, we oftentimes feel just like Susan that that we should be able to control. Like we're able to terms of so many other things in our lives. We we should be able to control this, like we control everything else in our life, but we can't. You know, it's one of the, every good thing has a shadow side, right? And, you know, uh, being smart, being able to be successful, figure things out, all of that, and I think about Northern Virginia, the D.C. area, the place where I pastored for the last 37 years, our congregation, I mean, it's just and I tell people this all the time when they say, describe Fairfield. I say, what's well, a congregation that's just made up of just such interesting people that do such interesting things. People that are really smart, people that are really well-read, people that are successful, people that are driven, people that get things accomplished, people that get things done, people that figure things out. Like, that's just... That's just this area, and that's just our congregation. Like We're just made up of folks, people that are like that, kind of gravitate to a place like, like Northern Virginia and like the Washington, D.C. area. But there's a shadow side to that. And the shadow side to that is that, like Susan, who fell into that category, we just feel like whatever it is that we are going through, that we should be able to control the outcome of what we are dealing with, the way that we are able to control the outcome of almost everything else that we deal with in life, but we can't. And I think that one of the hardest things about going through really difficult stuff, it's that. It's coming face to face with the reality that we are not in control. It's coming face to face with something that we just cannot perform our way out of. Think about it. Job was this incredibly successful man. He was in control of so many things. He was in control of his business. He was in control of his wealth, his success, his behavior. He was in control of all of that. But he wasn't in control of what he was going through right now. And when you get to chapter 28, Job acknowledges that. 
I am not in control. There's something incredibly powerful that happens when we are able to acknowledge that we are not in control of the really hard stuff that we're going through in life. It's not that we stop fighting. It's not that we stop trying to find a solution. It's not that we stop trying to figure things out and process through things and all of that. It's just that we realize that the thing that we are facing is bigger than us. It's just that we realize that we have come to the end of ourselves. It's just that we realize that it's bigger than our giftedness. It's bigger than our intelligence. It's bigger than our creativity. It's bigger than our passion. It's bigger than all of that. It's just bigger than that. The last verse of chapter 28 is in many ways the culmination of everything that Job has learned about suffering. Everything that Job has learned about wisdom. And this is what he says, right? We read it before. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now I know that it's strange sometimes to talk about the fear of the Lord. It's so much easier to talk about the love of the Lord. And almost always when we talk about the fear of the Lord, someone will bring up the verse that says, oh, I thought perfect love casts out all fear. I thought that's what the Bible says, that perfect love casts out all fear. The Bible does say that perfect love casts out all fear. So if that's true, like why should we fear God? And why should the fear of the Lord be a good thing? Why should the fear of the Lord help us gain wisdom? And to answer those questions, it's important to understand that there are different kinds of fear. There's the fear of being in the presence of something or someone bad because we're afraid that whatever the bad thing is will hurt us in some way. Whatever the bad thing is will cause us pain in some way. We're afraid that this bad thing or this bad person is going to cause us harm and that causes us to fear. But then there is the fear of being in the presence of something incredibly good, someone good. When we are in the presence of someone good, particularly someone who is infinitely good, our fear is not the fear of being hurt. Our fear changes. It's the fear of losing control. It's knowing that this good is infinitely more good than our good. That's the fear. It's coming face to face with the reality that this fear that I'm in the presence of, this good, I mean, that I'm in the presence of, this good is much more good than my good. And that when you come face to face with a good that is so much more good than your good, you feel, you know that you are out of control. You know that you are not in charge of things. Like you understand that when you realize that you have come face to face with a good that is so much more good. This good is infinitely more capable of dealing with the really painful stuff in our lives than we are. The fear of the Lord is not the fear that God is going to hurt you. It's not the fear that God is going to harm you in some way. 
The fear of the Lord is the scariness of the idea of putting your unconditional trust in God in the midst of the darkness. That's scary. It's the scariness of putting your unconditional trust in God in the midst of whatever darkness it is that you are experiencing. But Job says that's, that's where you find wisdom. That's where we gain the wisdom to know how to deal with the really difficult, painful things that we're going through in life. It's trusting God in the darkness. Which of course begs the question, are you willing to trust God in the darkness? Like that's really the only question that ultimately really matters. Are you willing to trust God in the Willing to trust the one who endured the darkness of the cross on your behalf? Are you willing to entrust your darkness to him? That's the only question, again, that really matters. And here's the deal. When we choose to trust God in the midst of really, really difficult situations, we actually grow in wisdom. Like we gain a new perspective on who we are and, and who God is and, and what it means to navigate life through all of this difficult stuff that we find ourselves in the midst of. Like we of how we should live in the midst of the messiness and the brokenness of this world. God's faithfulness in the midst of the darkness enables us to move forward with this confidence that we need to navigate whatever challenges that we are facing and to, to live life to the absolute full. Like to live life in all of its fullness. Like that's that's what happens when we are able and willing to trust God in the darkness. So again, the question is, are you willing to trust God in the darkness? And for some of us, the darkness is like a circumstance we're dealing with, a, a relationship, a challenge, a decision, a, a health crisis, a financial crisis, a Whatever it is, like it's something circumstantial that we are going through. That's the darkness that we have to ask. Am I willing to trust God in the midst of the darkness? But for others, it's not, it's not like just the circumstances of life. It's something, it's something even more important than that. It's the darkness of our own brokenness. It's the darkness of our own sin. It's the darkness of being separated from a God who loves us beyond measure. It's the darkness of carrying our past into the present. It's the darkness of not being set free. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. And one of the questions that I grapple with at times is if someone understands that there is a God who loves them so much 
that they go to the cross and, and die for them to pay for their sins and that all they have to do is to say yes to that, just to receive it. Just to say yes what done for them on the cross. To receive his grace, to, for, to receive his forgiveness. Like that's, that's all they have to do to start this journey. Like why in the world would anyone on the face of the planet if they came face to face with that reality, not say yes to what Christ has done for them. And the reason is because it means losing control. And it's scary. Sometimes we would rather remain in our darkness than trust God in the midst of the darkness. That's true with the circumstances sometimes. Some of you maybe are in the middle of dark stuff and it's just, it's less scary to be in the darkness than it is for you to give up control and trust God in the darkness. And for some of you, perhaps it's less scary to live in the darkness of your own sin and your own brokenness and all of that than it is to trust God with your darkness say yes to what he's done for you on the cross because it means losing control God we just confess to you today it's scary to lose control it, it just it's scary it's scary sometimes to really be confronted and know that we're in the presence of a God who is so immeasurably good whose goodness is so, so much more than our goodness. It's just scary to turn over control in the midst of difficult circumstances and difficult challenges and decisions and all of that. And, and it's really hard. It can be really, really hard, really, really scary to turn over control of our brokenness, our sin lose control, come to the end of ourselves. Say that I am undone. But God, we pray that we would trust you in the darkness. Whatever the darkness represents for us today, that we would trust you in the darkness. In the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.